Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, a company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, at four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. And right now, without further ado, here he is, that silver-throated doctor of history. <laughs> good morning. How are you doing today, Zab? I am wonderful, my friend. Thank you. Good, good. Uh, before we get into this, just want to remind our listeners that we can be found on iTunes now. Aha. Uh-huh. So if they don't I, get go to our webpage, they can find us on the podcasts of iTunes. How do they go about finding you specifically, or I should say us? I think they can... Uh, uh, actually type in education uh, podcast or history podcast. I see. And then I think we come up in that list somehow. Okay. All right. Well, congratulations. <laughs> well, thank and, you. And now, not only with iTunes, but also on the Internet, 112 countries yeah. are listening to us. Yeah, it's great. So today, I'm going to spellbind you with a story about a man that I'm going to bet Nobody, nobody has ever heard of. Um, so you're going to spellbind me. I'm going to spellbind you. And who is this illustrious well, person? Well, it's quite a, a, a fantastic name, Thomas Smith. Oh, there's a name you never hear. Never hear. Born October 10th, 1801 at Crab Orchard, Kentucky. Oh, <laughs> Crab Orchard, Kentucky. Kentucky's got some great names <laughs> back there. They so, really do. Yeah, he was the fourth of nine children. He became a legendary Idaho figure when he opened and ran a trading post along the Bear River from 1842 through 1857. How'd he get here? Well, we're going to get to that. I figured you would. <laughs> yes. So as a young boy, he wandered west. He spent his first winter alone in Natchez, Mississippi, where he worked for room and board at a riverside tavern. And there he used his knife to knife a riverman during a drunken brawl and fled seeking refuge among the Osage Indians. Really? Yeah. So that was his first kind of heading west thing. Wow. So, Well, within two years, he had established a good liquor business among the Indians, but soon tired of that and joined an upriver expedition with French trapper Antoine Robidoux. And what river was it? Uh, I believe it was the Mississippi. I see. Or, well, I'm not, it doesn't say actually, but anyway, I think, no, I think it was the Missouri. Okay. Just guess. Didn't but, mean to get yeah. you. Anyway, several years later, he showed up with the Ashley and Henry expedition to explore the upper Yellowstone. Within two months, Smith showed his bravery fighting in the famed Arikara Battle of 1823. Mm-hmm. By September 1824, Smith and other Ashley trappers were in the land of the Utes and Shoshone in the Green River area, and here he and his party were attacked by Ute Indians. Now, one of Smith's men was killed, and the furs and mules were all stolen. Uh-oh. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Mm-hmm. Smith, along with two members of his party, pursued the Indians on foot. 
On the second day, they boldly walked into the center of the Ute camp. Smith, shouting loudly in the Ute dialect, stated that the Indians had made a very bad mistake by stealing their mules and furs. He wasn't the brightest bulb in the star <laughs> well, fixture, here, was he? But here's what happened. It was fortunate, Smith yelled, that he had located the Utes in time, since no harm would now come to them if they immediately returned the stolen goods. Three guys. Three guys. In the middle in, of the camp. In the middle of a camp. Yeah. And they, the three guys, said no harm would come to the Indians. Right. Hmm. So the Ute Indians stood dumbfounded, as you can imagine, at the bravery of the three trappers, especially the loud and courageous Smith. So the Indians not only returned the mules and furs to the trappers, but invited them to remain in the safety of their camp and trap the fertile beaver area in that through that whole winter. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean to tell me the Indians, and I'm not trying to be derogatory, they were that dumb to buy that three guys were yeah. going to make demands? Well, that's the way it happened. So, And now, actually, the Utes named this guy Smith. They called him Big Friend. Big Friend. That's how they nicknamed him. Uh-huh. So, anyway, Thomas Smith, along with Milton Sublett, who is a name we know, joined a trapping expedition in 1827. During the expedition, they were attacked by Indians. Two of the trappers were killed in the ambush. Now, while Smith was attempting to retrieve the bodies of his friends, he was hit in the left ankle by a rifle ball, blowing his right foot right out from under him. Well, Smith hobbled a few steps on this jagged bone and then fell to the ground in agony, and he remained there while the battle raged on. Now, after nine Indians had fallen dead, the fighting ceased and the ambushers retreated. Smith was carried a mile to a safer place where he was given whiskey to ease his pain. Uh, his wound was not tended since his companions thought that, well, he's just going to die anyway. He saw no point in wasting good liquor or wasting time on this guy. Holy smokes. So, kind of a cruel bunch, weren't yeah. they? You know, this might be a good you know time what? for we, a break. We have a quick call. I'm okay. going to see if this is in regards to the program. Caller, go ahead quickly your question. They hung up, sir. I guess they wanted to listen instead. All right. That's good. Thank you very much. We're going to do a quick break and come back with more of why Mr. Smith got shot in the ankle, you said? And they yeah. gave him up for dead. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Stand by. Don't forget Minicasha Sales, 1321 East Main Street in Burley with Zach and the whole crew. Hey, not only the carpet, but also all the lumber for remodeling chores you've got set up for this spring. All your roofing material. And don't forget the upgrade of your windows with the western windows. And oh my goodness, all the Tartar Farm and Ranch gates and panels. The very best. I'm telling you, these folks really care. And they can help you. They will help you at Minicasha Sales, 1321 East Main Street in Burley. And now back to why did they leave Mr. Smith to die with a ankle all shot to pieces? Okay. Well, you know, like I said, they didn't want to waste any time helping him. So finally, the angered, half-delirious Smith leveled his rifle at the camp cook and ordered a sterilized butcher knife to be brought to him. Uh Uh-huh. With this, he began sawing away the jagged portions of the ankle, meat, and bone. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. You just made a very, very uh, kind of a uh, prickly feeling go up my back. This guy operated on his own ankle? Well, he passed out from the pain before he had severed the Achilles tendon. So Milton Sublett finished the job, kind of squaring the jagged bone as best as he could. Now, we've talked about these guys being tough. 
Uh-huh. Okay. So, and it doesn't end there. Uh, with a leg stub swathed in twists of tobacco and bound with a ragged shirt, Smith was dragged along on a crude horse-drawn litter. Now, did they cut the ankle, the foot yeah. off? Yeah, it's gone. They cut the foot off. Yeah, it's gone. Okay. <laughs> So they drew, uh, he was on this litter for over 150 miles being, uh, on this horse-drawn litter. Now, during the two weeks that Smith was dragged about, the trappers went about their daily routine. Uh, Milton Sublet saw to it that he had uh, food and water. Now, as you can imagine, gangrene and effect, infection set in, oh my and the goodness. leg ballooned to a huge proportion. By this time, Smith was unconscious. Well, duh. Yeah. Now, sensing that it was mere hours before their companion's death, uh, the trapping party left him with a group of Ute Indians who uh, had made their summer camp nearby. So now he's with these with the Ute he Indians. He got left with the Indians. Yeah. And he's got gangrene. Yeah, an infection. So under their care, Smith survived. What about his leg? Well, I'm going to get to that. <laughs> As he recuperated, he carved a wooden limb. And through hours of practice, he learned to be as agile as any two-legged man. In later years, however, he taught his horse to lie down so that he could mount with ease. Okay. Now, the name Big Friend was now replaced with Wooden Leg among his Indian friends. His trapper friends called him Peg Leg. Peg Leg. Peg Leg Smith now. Okay. Peg Leg Smith. <laughs> okay. So anyway, one of Peg Leg's Ute friends was Chief Wakara. And you probably heard of him, uh-huh. but it was through Smith's marriage to Wakara's sister that he was adopted into the Ute tribe. You're going too fast for me. I know it, it goes fast, but oh one of the tribal members, a guy by the name of Wolfskill, accompanied Smith to California, which was still under Spanish control. Now he's riding all he's this riding. way with yeah. a wooden leg. Yeah, yeah. So with beaver pelts, the two purchased horses, which were trailed back home and sold at Fort Bridger for a really a nice profit. Well, it didn't take uh, long for Peg Leg to figure out that a lot bigger profits could be made if the horses could be had for nothing. Mm-hmm. Now, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Cuts down on your overhead. Yeah. Anyway, his personal code of ethics dictated that a man did not take that which did not belong to him. Yeah. So Smith returned to California only to fall under the spell of liquor, which was his custom, ended up in jail, which was another custom of his. When he was released, minus his horse and possessions, he met up with a small group of trappers who had met with similar fate. Hold on a second. So now This guy California. goes to California. He was given the opportunity, bad as it was, to steal some horses. Yeah. And then he ends up in jail. Right. And all of this with a wooden leg, and they could hear him coming five blocks away. <laughs> right. Thunk, 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 yeah. thunk, thunk. Well, he was determined not to leave a foot, so to speak. Oh, the small so group speak. helped themselves. They helped themselves to a few horses, about 25 head each. Yeah. Okay. So that probably wow. 150 horses. Yeah. And they hightailed it to the Rockies, brought them up here. The escapade was so simple and so profitable that Smith tossed away his moral ethics and decided to take horse thieving as a full-time occupation. They hang people for that. (laughs) Well, you know, anyway, uh, everybody's got to do something. So he talked. Yeah, you became a chiropractor. (laughs) That's right. Well, he talked to Kara's braves and several trappers into joining his new business venture. Now, during his next trip into California in 1830, Smith and his group gathered over 600 horses. Wow. Okay. Now, All at one time? Yeah. Now, Smith's herd, had re- his own herd, had reproduced and grown fat and sleek, and Peg Leg had become restless with his lot in life. So, in 1840, he planned another horse raiding raid. Uh, a large group of Indians were recruited, and the raid commenced. Over 5,000 horses were gathered. 
But this time, the thieves were pursued by the Spanish, their army, so to speak. They didn't like that. No. A lot of the horses died as they were herded across the Mojave Desert at top speed. Yeah. And for many years, their bones marked the route that they had taken. Now, So what, all of this can be verified in history. Oh, yes. Everything I say is true. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? With a chuckle. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well... When the group reached a water hole, actually Barstow, California. You, I've been there. You've been there. Oh, that's so You don't find many water holes no. out there. Well, Smith divided his men, sending half on with the stock, while the other half waited in ambush. Well, the Spaniards, in their haste to reach the needed water, they were taken by surprise. Eighty fell beneath the shots uh, of Smith and his crew, and the survivors retreated back from where they'd come. How many? How many guys did Smith have with him? Not very. Well, it doesn't really tell us exactly how many. Oh. But not that many. Okay. So anyway, about 2,800 horses made it to their new Idaho home. 2,800? Yeah, that's a lot of horses. So anyway, Peg Lake Smith's previous raid had uh, held not only profit but excitement. Uh, he, he liked that. So Peg Lake, he was chomping at the bit for another raid, and he set the next one for November 1841. So by late October, Wakara's braves were gathering for this big event. They were going to go with him. Um, however, the Spanish were determined not to suffer the losses they had in the previous year's raid. Mm-hmm. So the governor, his name was Victoria, doubled the size of his garrisons, began strict surveillance all along the borders. Any suspicious spies or informers were actually hung. So there were probably guys hung that were perfectly innocent. And this is while uh, California was still Still a territory of uh, Mexico. Yeah. Okay. Four men who were caught driving stolen horses were each, I hate to say this, they were each tied by their arms and legs to different horses and pulled apart. Um, Thank you for being so graphic this morning. Anyway, Governor Victoria formed his own spy system and passed a new law that any trapper found crossing the border would have their pelts confiscated and would be heavily fined. One of the trappers arrested and fined was Milton Sublett, and he lost over $35,000 in pelts. Now, in 1840, 35,000? You know, that's like at least three million, maybe. Oh my I don't know. Goodness, yes. So, okay, so on November, so, so Sublet wasn't uh, uh, as good a guy as we think he was. No, he was okay. He was okay. Yeah, he wasn't on the raids. He was oh. just trapping. He was just going through there. Yeah, yeah. So on November third, a border patrol found numerous horse tracks. The alarm was immediately spread to Uh-oh. nearby ranches, missions, and garrisons, and soon the Spaniards were aware of every move that Peg Legs Raiders made. I got a question for you. There had to be some honest horse traders back in those days. Yeah. What did they do without brands uh, as a certificate or something to prove that they owned them? I don't think they even worried about that. You know, back then you could move a horse from here to there and so you just could, sell it. And you could get pulled apart when you didn't do anything wrong. Exactly, yeah. Where's John? Well, yeah. he's laying over there. And, <laughs> and over John's there. over there. And over there. But anyway, for eight days, the unsuspecting Smith and his men roamed the Spanish-held countryside. They caught about 200 horses, and after sweeping a large area, the disgusted raiders began heading for their meager, uh, heading their meager take across the Mojave Desert again. Uh-huh. Now, when Pegleg and his men reached the watering hole where they had lain in ambush back there at Barstow against the Spaniards a year earlier, they found themselves under similar attack. Oh, so less than half of Smith's men got out. Alive, Pegleg was grazed across the ribs. His horse was shot out from under him. 
but he escaped. On, now, wait a minute. A guy with a wooden leg, you're not going to set a record for being a track star. No, but he moved pretty. He escaped. And anyway, only 40 Spanish horses were brought back into Idaho. Okay. But anyway, shortly after Smith's last horse thief fiasco, immigrants began crossing the Oregon Trail, part of which passed right by Peg Leg's door on the Bear River. Yeah. Okay. So Smith hastily erected a trading post and began doing some horse trading. Now, with, was that over at Montpelier or over, in, that over area. in the Preston area? Yeah, over Okay. He just says the Bear Lake area, okay. so right. Bear River. But anyway, he stocked his post with supplies, uh, and he would exchange some of his fine Spanish horses for some of the horses that were worn out. Uh, but the Indians and the white men traded at Smith's. He sold whiskey, colored with plugs of tobacco, and watered down four times to his white customers. He watered down the plug-colored whiskey six times for his Indian customers, mm-hmm. and each paid $1 per pint. Mm. So I'm thinking that was quite a bit. But peg leg was often paid in furs at the rate of $2.50 a pound, which he then sold in Missouri for about $7.50 a pound. So more than he tripled his money on the furs that he bought. So now here's another little trick that he did. He must have went to Trump University. <laughs> he did. He he when he dealt in pinches of gold, you know, how you'd uh, take a pinch of gold to yeah. pay for something. Yeah. Well, he had a a large gold nugget nugget around his neck uh, attached, and what he would do is he would take his thumb and press on that nugget real hard for maybe thirty seconds or a minute, and which would create an indentation in his thumb. Okay, oh. so when he went to take that pinch of gold. He probably got twice as much as a real pinch of gold. You know, these guys were not stupid. <laughs> no, he, he, he did well, Yeah. if not honest. Anyway, horses, you know, however, uh, afforded Peg Leg the greatest profits, and travelers paid as much as $200 for one of his green broke Spanish horses. And really? They were required to leave him with a worn-out but well-broke uh, mounted horse. Yeah. And within weeks, the worn-out horse was sleek and looking good and ready to sell for $200 to the next guy that came along. This guy was an entrepreneur. He, he, were, he really was. So in the course of a decade, uh, Pegleg Smith uh, grew wealthy off his trading post, which was in operation from 1842 through 1857, so yeah. in about 15 years, and he boasted profits of $100 a day. Now, the, now that yeah, is a lot of money. That is. In uh, those days. So, but travelers enjoyed the amenities of Smith's Fort. They found this. Uh, they found white bread, salt, pepper, brandy, milk, beef, pork, flour, bacon, butter, and when a season, fresh vegetables. And they also found this kind of portly, balding, round-faced peg leg, uh, kind of an, an amusing character to have around the campfire, you know, telling stories. So, but anyway, 1819, Thomas Smith lived among the Osage Indians with his wife, who was an Osage woman. Yeah. Now we're going back a little bit. Yeah, right? we're going back a ways. Okay. So, you got three minutes. Okay. Th- th- I've got one page. Okay. <laughs> anyway, Smith, uh, Smith's first recorded marriage took place around 1824 to a woman named Mountain Fawn. This was the Ute sister of Chief Wakera. I see. Okay, now follow this closely. Oh, I am. I'm listening. Okay, Peg Leg was thus officially adopted into the Ute tribe. Mm-hmm. Several months following the marriage, he joined the Utes in a battle against the Shoshone. His bravery so impressed his Ute brothers that he was given all the wives he wanted. Uh-oh. He only took three or four. I see. So now we're up to, I think, five wives. Yeah, you know, taxes yeah. and everything. So when Smith went on his horse-thieving forays, uh, he left his Ute wives uh, and his offspring behind. Uh-huh. Well, during the construction of his trading post along the ba- banks of the Bear River, 
peg leg visited Fort Hall, which is not very far from us, Mm-mm. for some supplies. But he brought home another wife, a young Bannock woman. Oh, this so might be a bad deal. This is, uh, you'll see. Okay. So later that same year, Smith went east with fur bundles to trade in Missouri. When he returned to his post, he had with him a pretty crow woman, which he explained to his jealous wives that he had won in a poker game. Wife number one, Mountain Fawn, did not like this. Uh The two women got in a knife fight. The young crow overpowered the older Ute Mountain Fawn woman. She fell dead. So Pegleg carried the body of Mountain Fawn. I think she was his favorite. I'm, I'm trying to follow this. Okay, carried, okay. Carried wife the, number one got literally killed nine, the axe. Yes, by yeah. wife number six. Yeah. Anyway, he carried her to Ward Bear Lake, where she was buried in an upright position so that she could look out across the water. When he returned to the post, all but his crow wife had packed up and left. So he lost all of his wives. He lost everybody except, except the, the crow. crow. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, he died a pauper on October 15, 1866, in the San Francisco County Hospital. In California? In California. Now, how he got there from Idaho, I have no idea. And how did he lose all of his holdings, though? I, uh, alimony? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the that's story. That's the story of Peg Leg Thomas Smith. Holy 1801 God. to 1866. And he died? Age 65, died. And, and what did you say he passed away from? It didn't didn't say. <laughs> One of the just, wives caught him. <laughs> or, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, uh, I'll bet, I, I'm just guessing nobody's heard of Peg Leg Smith. Thomas I Smith. didn't know all that myself. I'd never heard of the guy. No. I, that's why I kind of like that story. <laughs> You know what? You do a great job, and uh, even after all that, we're still heard in 112 countries. Yeah. And on? iTunes. iTunes. Just look for us there. Okay. Yep. We're all over. We are. <laughs> we're like what's laying out in the corral. <laughs> That's right. We're all over. We're all over the place. <laughs> Dr. History.